Hi, this is Welcome to Self, caring for the human in the therapist chair. And I'm your host, Dr. Haley D. Quinn, fellow human, clinical psychologist, supervisor, and trainer. Welcome to Self is a place where you can come and learn ways to elevate your own care and compassion. A place to rest and be soothed. A place to remember that you are human first and choose the helping profession as just one of the roles in your life. My aim is that this is a place of soothing, comfort, nourishment and nurture. A place where you can also welcome yourself. to another episode. I'd like to take a moment of gratitude for everyone who's contacted me regarding episode topics and given me feedback. I really do appreciate it and it definitely keeps me motivated to keep this podcast going. Before we get into this episode, don't forget my colleague Dr Lisa McLean and I will be presenting a two-day in-person CFT for trauma training at the beautiful Sunshine Coast in November. You can find the link in the show notes or reach out via my website. We'd love to have you join us. I'm thrilled to introduce my next guest, a fellow psychologist and businesswoman I've had the pleasure of working with, Dr. Rebecca Ray. Beck is a clinical psychologist, author and speaker. Over the course of almost two decades of practice, Beck has helped thousands of big picture thinking people through courses, consultations and transformative content live a life that's fulfilling unapologetic and free. Whilst her technique is science-backed, her approach sees her deliver both hard and heart truths within an ethos of self-kindness first, always. Beck's unique expertise sets her apart as one of Australia's most in-demand and authoritative voices in the personal development space. Beck is an author of five books, including Be Happy, The Art of Self-Kindness, The Universe Listens to Brave, Setting Boundaries, and Small Habits for a Big Life. She lives in the soul-fed hills of the Sunshine Coast, one of my favourite places in the world, with the great loves of her life, her wife Nyssa, son Bennett, two rescue Irish setters, and one gangly Weimarama. I'm sure you'll get a lot from this episode and enjoy it as much as I did. It's my pleasure to introduce Beck to Welcome to Self. Beck, thank you so much for joining me on Welcome to Self. I'm really excited to have you here. I am so happy to see your face again. It's really, really nice. It's lovely me to get to meet on Zoom, isn't it? Unfortunately, the the listeners won't get to see our faces, but um, we'll hear our chat, which I'm really looking forward to. Absolutely. And what's even more exciting is when we first met, you didn't even have a podcast. And now here we are chatting on your podcast. I know, season three, no less. Great. Yeah, I I still find that mind blowing, and I'm like, hang on, how am I a podcast host? But anyway, I am. How life can uh, creep up on you, hey? Absolutely. So you've had an interesting path to becoming a psychologist, and like many of us, you took the scenic route as well to get here. Can you share some of your story with us? Yeah, it. I mean, it started off fairly, I think, simple. I. I don't know whether you had the same, but at school, in high school, we had a careers night in grade 10. Um, and I still think, God, grade 10 is such a, I was 15. It's such a young age to be deciding what you were going to do with the rest of your life. But I I made a very clear decision that I was going to study, study psychology. And so I just happened to get the um, score that I needed to get into psychology. Um, I did a double degree, a Bachelor of Business in majoring in HR combined with a Bachelor of Arts in Psychology. And I started that straight out of school and I thought, great, this is what I'll do. And in that same year, so that year I was turning 18, my grandfather, Ronnie, he was a private pilot. He had his own plane and um, he happened to say to me, 
for context, he was one of the, and remains one of the greatest loves of my life. He, mm. he and I were best friends. And he said to me, if you can drive a car, you can fly a plane. And I was extremely anxious. Like I was the most fragile teenager you've ever met. I, I had such a, I don't think I had a low, well, I must have, I must have had a low sense of self-worth, but I felt like maybe a way to make this anxiety go away was to do something big and flying felt big. So in my head, I was like, if I can conquer that, if I can fly a plane, then the anxiety must go away. So I think I was trying to prove something to myself, um, but also something to the anxiety. And so I believed Ronnie when he said, if you can drive a car, you can fly a plane. What I now know is that that's bullshit. Um, <laughs> so, but maybe for his brain. So he was a really curious man and could yeah. do anything with his hands. Like just, so, he was a builder by trade, just remarkable man. And yeah. um, so I could fly. I I could. I, I achieved my private pilot's license. Still anxious though. Um, <laughs> it did not work. So being stubborn like I am, um, as you know, I went on and figured that the answer to the anxiety must be to do more flying. Um, yeah. It must be to go against the very clear signs that flying wasn't natural to me and do more of it. So I got my commercial pilot's license. I got my night uh, VFR rating. I got my multi-engine rating. And I also went on and won a scholarship through ANSET, which then got my instructor rating so that I could teach other people to fly. Yeah. Now at that time, so we're some years into flying training now. Yeah. I wanted to throw up every time I drove to the airport. And uh, it had gotten to the point where I was actually physically making myself sick. The, and and I think my, like in retrospect, when I look back, I think what was happening was two things. One, I was pushing myself so far outside my strong suit in terms of my natural strengths. Um flying a small piece of tin in a like visuospatial skills slash maths way just didn't work for my brain, despite yeah. the fact that I didn't fail any test or anything. It just, it just didn't come naturally to me. And so there was that. And then I also think that I was operating from a place of trying to prove, prove something. Like I was, I was trying to make myself acceptable in yeah. some way. And yeah flying was supposed to do that and it didn't it didn't change if anything it it damaged my relationship with my spirit not fixed it yeah it's like trying and to fit clothes that aren't yours hey exactly exactly I could wear them but yeah. they didn't feel comfortable and so I sat down with my parents and said and, and Ronnie Ronnie didn't care Ronnie thought the sun shone out of me vice versa um so I thought I would upset him, but he didn't mind at all. And my parents said, we can see that you're unhappy, so just do what you want to do. Yeah. And so I went back to psychology, but that transition felt like a huge failure for me, a really deep failure yeah. that I held on to for some years. I I thought if I wasn't flying for Qantas um, like I said I was going to, then I've obviously failed. Right, isn't it interesting the stories we tell ourselves and then oh hold on to as well? right so ridiculous but at the time that's how it felt and so then I went and did uh, my master's which turned into my professional doctorate in Newcastle uh, yeah. University and I went into private practice and again I ended up in a place where I think I was trying to prove something I don't I don't know who to but I think I was looking outside at other psychologists that did lots of hours and I thought well at the time I was single yeah so I had kind of nowhere else for my energy to go it's not like I was trying to maintain a relationship or anything and I thought well I'll pay off debt because surely that must be the thing that makes you worthy you know if I can get myself in a good financial position then then I'll be worthy yeah and so I work too much and mm. As you know, the vast majority of work that I did was treating emergency services personnel and defence force yeah. uh, current serving and retired personnel. So I was dealing with a lot of trauma. And despite the fact that it wasn't actually the nature, it wasn't the content of the work yeah. that I was doing that burnt me out, I just ended up doing 
doing so much of that work, like not saying no to referrers, not saying um, perhaps I'll work a few less days. I just didn't, I didn't manage it very well. I just kept yeah. on doing it. And I was then forced to end my clinical career at the age mm. of 35, about 35 years earlier than what I'd planned to. Yeah. yeah. And at that time, as much as I was desperate to get out, I was devastated. Like the, it could almost make me teary now thinking about saying goodbye to clients I had worked with who had chronic mental health difficulties yeah. over the course of years. You know, I was so invested in that work and in my relationships with them and seeing them get better, you know, like it, it was just one of the biggest joys and privileges of my life. And here I was having to walk away, like, again, just smashed failure in the face. I just felt awful. But I had no choice. I lit- I got myself into a position where burnout, burnout made the choice for me. Yeah. Really, really disappointing. And when I look back, I can see that what made what got me to that point was this idea of what I should be doing rather than what actually fit for me. Interesting. So, uh, welcome to Self Group this morning, actually. We were talking about comparisonitis where we look out and see what other people are doing and think, well, that's obviously what you should be doing rather than tuning in to actually what do I need to be doing for me? Or even just knowing what the options are that you yeah. could do it differently. I think I looked outside and went, well, that's the way they're doing it, so that's the only way that, yeah. can, that can be done. And so I was left with this decision about how do I pay my bills? Like, yeah. I was like oh, actually, I guess the thing that allowed me to make the decision to walk away was Nissa, my wife. So I I found a healthy love for the first time in my life and um, I, I would get home in the afternoon and she would be like, how was your day? And I would literally put my hand up in a stop position and yeah. say, I am not available for conversation. Like I've got nothing wow. left. Yeah. And it was, that had never happened to me in my life where someone else wanted a piece of me. And I got to the point where I was like, if I don't, if I don't have something left for the person I love most in the world, then how, what, what am I doing? Yeah, absolutely. And Can so, toll, can't it, on other aspects of your life? Absolutely, it started to bleed out into my personal life, and that's when I was forced to make a decision. But I, I need to say this out loud for any listeners that are thinking, "Oh, did she just stop and work, walk away?" It wasn't that simple. I, the reason I could make that decision was because I had someone beside me saying, you need to stop. Like, it's almost like she gave me permission mm. and I was not the only breadwinner anymore. I was not the only one paying our bills. Um, yeah. And so there was a little bit of space there to be able to step back. But I, I'm not sure. Well, actually, I know that had I kept going the way that I was going, I would have had to stop. There would have been no choice. But Nissa gave me permission to walk away when I really needed to. Yeah. And then I was forced to create another career. And yeah. that's how you and I met was I woke up going, what am I going to do with my life? Yeah. And I didn't want to walk away from psychology because I love it so much, but I had to find a way to use psychology without using psychology. How do you be a psychologist without being, well, how do you be a clinical psychologist without seeing patients? And so um, here we are. Here Here we are. I accidentally fell into writing books, putting courses out online to make psychology accessible for lay people and um, essentially creating a presence where people can access what I used to teach people in therapy um, in a different format. Yeah, because, it, I mean, it's, it's a long road to becoming a psychologist, isn't it? There's a lot of work and a lot of, you know, sweat and yeah. tears go into it. Yeah. And I think, you know, it can be really sad when people have to move away from the clinical practice. Yeah. And there's ways that people can stay in clinical practice, but there's also mm-hmm. ways of using these skills that you've developed over so many years to create careers that are actually a really good fit. Mm. Um, and I love seeing both outcomes in that people that decide, you know what, the clinical work is no longer for me, but I'm going to use my skills for something else. And also people who go, well, no, actually, I really enjoy my one on one work. I love the clinical work, but I'm going to find ways of doing it that's sustainable. Mm. Yeah. So sustainable you have, is my catchphrase. Absolutely. So what's, yeah. what's sustainable here? 
Yeah. So you've spoken very openly um, over the years about your own burnout experience. And I'm just wondering, can you share with the listeners some of the things that you think they might look out for in terms of their own risk of burnout? Yeah, for me, it was slow and insidious. Yeah. So it happened over a series of years. Um, And what happened was this, as I said just before, it was like a slow bleed out, you know, like, so it started off as Sunday night blues. Um, But, you know, I got to to work and got over myself and I was fine. Yeah. Um, Then it turned into every night before work blues. And Mm -hmm. I would get this intense anxiety uh, prior to going to work. It was really funny though, you know, Hayley, because I would panic about my capacity to do my job. And then I'd get in the room with the client and that unconscious competence would just take over and I was fine. And I would get to the end of the session and go, what were you so worried about? Like, you're fine. And yet I just didn't have the tolerance. So my frustration tolerance narrowed to the point where checking my inbox would make me incredibly worried. I would get very scared about what was waiting for me in my emails. I didn't want to answer the phone. I just had no emotional leeway, no bandwidth left to cope with anything unpredictable. So if my, if my notes were subpoenaed, you know, like something we deal with all the time in clinical practice, I would get a letter from a solicitor and I'd go, like, oh my God. And my notes, honestly, I'm a recovering perfectionist. My notes will be sure your notes will fun. Nothing to be worried about. And yet I would panic. And so yeah. what I then did was I started to band-aid. And this is what I want listeners to look out for. Because it can work. Like you said, there is ways to make yeah. alterations. So what Absolutely. I did was I was like, I would just take more holidays. And the holidays would be more dramatic. So I went to Africa, you know, like we're, we're talking like very intense, amazing holidays. Yeah. And then that didn't work. So I would return and I'd be okay for a while. And then I would return to the same state. So what I would do then is I did less days. Yeah. So rather than doing five days a week, I started doing four days a week. But I would do the same hours in those. Days. The same amount of hours that I used to do in five or do in four. So it's like you're tricking yourself, isn't it? I know. <laughs> like massaging, like surely this will convince her that she's okay. Um, and for a while, a three-day weekend actually really did work for me because yeah. there was a couple of days off and one day to do errands and it was fine. And then it, until it wasn't. And yeah. then, so I what I then did was reduced my hours. And well, just, it didn't work. And when I say it didn't work, what was happening was that anxiety was returning and um, the anxiety was actually really prominent. So I would wake up in the morning and just feel sick and just feel like I couldn't concentrate. I had to, there was a lot of management that was going on. So at the time I was taking my dog to work and just for Henry's mental health, I would have, we would go for a walk anyway. So I'd get up at like quarter to five and walk him for an hour in the morning and be at work by 7am. And the exercise was great, but then I had to start walking twice a day to manage yeah. the anxiety. And that's when I started thinking there's a lot of management going on that seems to be excessive. Um, so I had a conversation with a colleague of mine. We went out to lunch and he said to me, if you don't stop, something's going to happen to you that will force you to stop. Yeah. And I said, I can't stop because I have bills to pay. And he said, how much equity do you have in your home? And I said, that's bullshit. I have worked so long to build up the equity in that home. I don't want to touch it. And he said, hold on, what's the story you're telling yourself about the fact that you can't touch that equity? Why not? And I said, because that's me failing. I've worked to create this financial kind of stability. I don't want to eat into that. And he said, you know, if you don't actually see that as one of your options, then my fear is you're going to get sick. And so um, then he also said to me something that has never left my head. He said, I said, what will I do? And he said, sometimes we need to create an empty space before we we create what will fill it. Yeah, absolutely. 
That was on the 15th of January, 2015. And two weeks later, my clinic was shut. Yeah. Um, because I also said to him, how do I get out of this? And he said, you rip the Band-Aid off because otherwise you're going to make it too difficult for clients and you're going to make it too difficult for yourself. Yeah. So that's what I did. And then <laughs> you're going to laugh at this. Um, so I did that. But I always had in the back of my head that I'd go back. Like there was no, I just couldn't make it permanent because yeah. of my grief state about it. Yeah. And so I was like, no, I'll be fine after a break. And so I took 18 months off and then I kind of had to go back because we were planning on having a baby secretly. We didn't tell anyone. But to make a baby when you've got two mums costs money. Yeah. And so I went back to clinical practice part-time and I thought, okay, new town, we'd moved away, new town, new practice, part-time, I'll be fine. Like, it's fine. I've healed. No, she had not healed in any way, shape or form. And so even when I got to the point where I was doing, oh, God, I would see maybe no more than four people a day and I used to see 10 a day. Oh, goodness me. I would only do two days a week and those days would be separated by days off. It didn't work, Hayley. Like I got I got to the point where I was like, what is wrong with you? Like you were doing such a fraction of what you used to and yet wow. those psychological scars were in place and they weren't going anywhere. Yeah. I so- have this. I have this urge to say to the health professionals listening, please don't see anything like 10 clients a day. And that's what I'd say. Oh, my goodness. What's what's even worse is I would say that to my supervisees. So if my supervisees were practising like that, I would be like, what is wrong with you? Um, Actually, I wouldn't say it like that, but you know what I mean. It's a recipe for, for crashing and burning, isn't it? It is, but I justified it because I wasn't seeing 10 people a day until I'd reduced my days back so I justified it by going well I'd rather see 30 people in three days than 30 people in five days because I have those couple of days off yeah but it's not okay like and so yes I'm taking responsibility for all of this I created this because of I bought into various narratives in my head yeah um when I returned I just couldn't do it and so I promised myself that I would never go back after having my baby. And so the last person I saw was the day before I gave birth to Bennett in 2018. And I haven't done any clinical work since. And there was no grief at that time because the transition to parenthood was so huge anyway that it kind of helped me to process all of that. But what's happened since is I've managed to create a job that doesn't feel like a job. So I'm now so fulfilled that I couldn't imagine doing it any other way. I get to, you know, work from home and have my dogs beside me and just do stuff that feels so deeply satisfying but that fits with my energy resources. Yeah, absolutely. But it's interesting, isn't it, because it's it's really being on the lookout for the stories that we're holding on to, how much we're wrapping up in our identity what we do, and then – really kind of being on the ball around how am I tricking myself like oh I'll just cut my days but I'll put all the clients from that other day into the days I've got left I mean that's just that's not helpful right that's like okay so you tricking yourself there so it really is isn't it keeping an eye out what am I telling myself and what am I doing that actually is not very helpful at all and where are my double standards what's okay what's okay for me but I would say it's not okay for someone else yeah. Because that, that was happening a lot. There was a lot of stuff that I would be so much kinder to other people about yeah. and um, so much gentler, and yet I was incredibly rigid and harsh when it came to myself. Yeah. And, I, and I know this is asking to simplify it because, you know, burnout and all that goes with it is a complex issue and it's not something that's easily fixed. Like you say, it takes years. Often it is insidious. Um, you know, I've had, I've spoken with people who... You sort of say, you know, do you think you might be feeling burnt out? Oh, no, I'm fine with, with my clients. No problem in my client work. It's like, yeah, but you've got nothing left for anybody else. Exactly. You don't want to spend time with your children. You don't want to talk to your partner when you get home. Yeah. You haven't got energy to go to the supermarket, so you dial in Uber Eats and get food delivered. It's yeah. that kind of stuff. But it's like, no, 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 my work's fine. It's like, actually, your work's taken over your life. And, and also your work's fine, fine because you're making sure your work's fine because yeah. 
we have a standard of practice that we must adhere to. Yeah. But you're then compromising everything else. Yeah, at the expense of the rest of your life. So if if people were finding themselves or they're sort of querying and go, oh, actually, I think I might be burnt out or absolutely no, I'm burnt out. What do you think have been the most helpful things for you? And I know that's sort of simplifying it, but what would you, what would you say to that? Everything's simplified in a podcast episode, so I get it. We've sure. only done a short <laughs> amount of time. Um, so honestly, I think my relationship with myself tra- changed so much. I am a different person. Um, I can relate to that. <laughs> yeah, and I so for that, I almost I almost need to say that I'm not sure I would have arrived here to be the person I am today without going through that. But I would also say to other people, please don't go through that to get to be because it's incredibly painful. But the thing that changed most was I really took responsibility for the way I related to myself. So I made a decision that nobody was coming. Like I could continue being so horrible to myself or I could not. I had a choice around that. And so I started, I just started being gentle. and. I took all the evidence I had that no amount of whipping myself was going to work. Sure, it got me a bank account that was comfortable. It got me um, a referral base where I didn't have to advertise for 10 years and I was my books were closed. But those weren't the things that added value to my life. And yeah. so the first thing was self-kindness, just being able to um, transition my relationship from one of being so incredibly abrasive to one that was a cushion between me and the rest of the world that my opinion about me actually counts and that opinion is really good now. Um, And then the second thing was, um, (laughs) the second thing was actually being able to transition my mental state from how it should be to how it could be. Yeah. So I, and I, I don't know whether I did this consciously, Haley, or whether I did this because I had to, because I kind of leapt before anything was created. I, I just had to figure it out because yeah. I'd given myself no choice. But I think what happened when I look back in reflection that I shifted from, well, if I'm not doing clinical practice, then what else is available to me? And at the time in Australia, there was no psychologist set online. So I had no no, or certainly no one with huge followings. And so I didn't really have anyone to model anything off. It's not like I looked out and went, oh, I'm going to do what um, Jane Doe is doing, who's a psychologist who's doing stuff online. I simply just thought, well, that's a place where I can access a large audience to potentially use the wisdom and experience that I have for good. So I'll try it. Yeah. So I think that second part is, from a place of self-kindness, giving myself permission to try yeah. um, and to see what happens. I mean, honestly, I still live on a daily basis where everything is uncertain because I now work on a project basis. Yeah. Um, but if I didn't actually create that space, then I wouldn't have gone looking for these opportunities that currently arrive on my desk now. Yeah. So yeah. in its simplest form, self-kindness and then possibilities. Yeah. Because absolutely. I used to be very rigid. Like I used to have to know what my future was going to look like. And that's actually really easy when you're in clinical practice. Like yes. <laughs> your life is going to look like more of this, you know, <laughs> more of a diary that looks like that. Whereas when I wasn't doing that anymore, I was like, well, where's the money going to come from? Because we live in a capitalist society. Um, I'm not a monk on a mountain, so how am I actually going to fund this? And how am I going to do it from a way where I can have a nap in the middle of the day if I need to? Because let's face it, I'm 43 now. I don't have um, stacks of energy available, and nor do I want to have that amount of energy available for work. So it's just allowing it to look different. Yeah, and I think, you know, coming back to the self-kindness piece, I think when we bring self-kindness and self-compassion into our life we see more possibilities but then we also allow ourselves to make different choices Mm. um, which can lead to all sorts of wonderful things right yeah it's so much easier to accept the fear 
when you're allowed to show up authentically yeah. and you're allowed to explore rather than having to have some kind of guaranteed outcome before you take that step. Yeah. Yeah. Self-kindness, self-compassion. Yeah. Absolutely. So you've it's written this book. book. It's what, sorry? It's a practice. It's absolutely a practice. Every day is a yes. practice, isn't it? And, um, <laughs> but I think when you can bring that practice into your life, it really can make a huge difference. Even on the little things, you know, on that choice making and, you know, daily choice making. What what what, what am I going to sort of tune in and listen to about what I need today and yeah. like that. I mean, people hear this from me all the time. It's <laughs> I'm a convert. I'm, I'm... <laughs> but you've written numerous books now, including yeah. the very popular Setting Boundaries. That just went off like a rocket, didn't it? My it's goodness. It's a bestseller in the Australian space now, which I'm very excited to say. That's so cool. And your new book, Small Habits for a Big Life. Mm. What have been your own biggest learnings through writing these books, do you think? Um, oh, look, this is, it's going to sound like this is how I run my life. Probably is the way I run my life. I, I basically learn how not to do it to learn how to do it. <laughs> so yeah. I used to write from a place of drama. Like, honestly, I was the most intense drama queen about it. And what I've learned is that when you're creating um, anything, if you're creating a course or a podcast episode or whatever it is that you're creating, it will get created with the drama or without it. Yeah. It, 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 again, that's a choice, right? It takes less energy without it. It takes less energy. <laughs> and so I don't know whether I had by osmosis from the media absorbed the kind of tortured artist narrative and therefore lived into that before I realized that I just have a choice around this like I can make it difficult and I can whinge about it and I can push up against a deadline before I actually take action or I can just do it and so over time I think what happened is I just got so busy that I now don't and I became a mum so that's different too I now just don't have the luxury of dramatics. Um, I just have to sit down and do the thing because I'm on a deadline and there's a company relying on me and we need to get it done. So in terms of the process, I think I've learned that uh, it takes far less energy to do the work um, without drama than what it does if you're going to be a bit of a, you know, emotional um, melodramatic queen about it. Yeah. But I've also learned that... Um, as much as I don't like the the process, so for those listeners, I'm on. I'm currently writing my sixth book, and I don't like writing. So hi, I'm Rebecca Ray. Um, does not love being an author, but I love the outcome. Yeah. So what I've become really good at is being able to get through the laborious part by focusing on how much I love making my work accessible um, for people that can't afford therapy, because yeah. I think therapy is a privilege. Um, even in Australia, when we have such a great healthcare system and you can access free therapy for 10 sessions, sometimes 10 sessions aren't enough. And um, I love the idea that someone can go and buy a book for 30 bucks um, or even less if you're buying from Kmart and Big W and uh, um, Target, hint, hint. Um, that's where you'll find my books at good prices. Uh, <laughs> you, you can be able to access all the things that I would teach clients previously um, in therapy sessions and and sure it doesn't you don't necessarily have that one-on-one -on -one individual tailored approach that you would get from therapy but it's still super valuable so I found kind of cognitive ways of massaging myself through the process yeah. in a way that allows me to do something really hard like going from a blank page one to 65 or 70,000 words later yeah. um, to get it done yeah, so it sounds like you kind of focus on the outcome and then you go gently with yourself through the process as best you can. I yeah. do, I do. And I also know certain things about the process that I couldn't have known beforehand. So those certain things are, I always get to a point where I hate it. So there will be, it's probably two-thirds of the way through where I stop and go, I promised I would write a book on this and how, am I even meeting that promise? Like, is it? Sometimes I even stop and go, have I even written on the topic? Like I get <laughs> so close to the work that I can't see the forest for the trees. Um, 
And that's when I hate it. I think I can't do this. I'm going to have to tell the publisher I can't deliver. Like there's, there is a mini meltdown. It used to be yeah. massive, but now it's just like a day and I'll go, oh, I must be nearly finished then um, if I'm experiencing that. And I also know that for me, I need to write in the morning. So everything, unless I'm like a week away from deadline and just finishing up some stuff, yeah, everything is written before 12 p.m. because my brain doesn't work for hard tasks after that. So I've learned to hack my circadian rhythms around that. Yeah, and I've also learned that um, there's a period, like like now, we're six weeks out from deadline, so we're about to go into a really intense time where my social media will probably be inconsistent, and there's no more interviews that are booked in during this time. I don't do anything extra because that's the most important thing and that's where my head stays. So there is a very intense period where I'm right in the book and yeah. I don't allow myself to be pulled away. And they're all just like little process things that I now understand so much about how I create that yeah. I not only make space for them, but I also um, really embrace that process as, as being just what works for me. Yeah, and, and what I'm hearing in Nana is it, it's about that relationship with yourself, isn't it? It's about understanding yourself, knowing the things that are helpful or not helpful. And whether that's in creative endeavours, whether that's in the way you run your practice, whether that's how you work for an employee, uh, an employer, sorry. It, it really is getting to know ourselves, isn't it? Allowing ourselves the time to build a good relationship with ourselves so we know what works and what doesn't. And then you can make the choices for yourself around that. Exactly. Even doing the hard things, right? Yeah. So when I'm doing um, a lot of writing, my back hurts. Yeah. Um, my neck hurts. My shoulders hurt because I'm spending lots of time in a chair. And so I know as much as my brain will go, we don't have time to do anything else, like nothing. All we can do is sit and stare at the computer screen. But it's even more important that I walk the dog um, yeah. and I walk the dog for a bit longer than I normally would because my body needs it in order to be able to cope with the hours that I'm putting in at the computer. Absolutely. Yeah. Tuning in and listening, isn't it? Listening yeah. to that wisdom. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So as a busy professional woman and a wife and a mum, I'm sure you, like all of us, have days that that, um, you find things to be challenging. What do you find are your biggest challenges in terms of taking care of yourself? Probably the biggest challenge is I have some leftover perfectionism when it comes to health habits in particular. So I'm, it's really interesting how perfectionism has, is no longer part of my identity at all except in this area. So yeah. I'm so good when I create. I'm I'm so I'm so fast now. Like write the caption, get it out there. Yeah. Write the write the newsletter, get it out there. I don't I don't even think twice. Even with my manuscript, because I know so intimately the editing process now. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not at all um upset about what I send initially because I just know it'll get massaged. That's good to know. Yes, yes. The editing, I love being edited. It's such a powerful process, but it always makes my work a thousand times better. It's just, and just it like it to send it. Okay, yes, I'm holding yes. that one. I'm, I've yes, heard that Honestly, one. from someone that's been on the other side, being edited is the most wonderful thing. Um, leave it up to them. It's not yeah. your job. Um, but what's left over is, oh, this is a hard one. And I'm working on this consciously and have been for quite some years now. Uh, sometimes successfully and sometimes not, Yeah, is sometimes I decide that unless I'm walking for an hour six days a week, then I may as well do nothing. <laughs> unless I'm drinking three litres of water a day, then I'll, I may as well drink none. Like, yeah. like two glasses is not better than three litres, therefore I'll just drink none. Like it's just. Oh, it's so common that, isn't it? Right. It's so, and it's it's very entrenched and I. The way I'm, I try to be gentle is I was raised by a mum and two grandmothers who had very toxic relationships with their body. Yeah. Um, my mum is on a diet permanently and she, that means she's either being good or she's being bad when yeah. it comes to food. 
Um, and I've actually never, I've never heard her talk nicely about her body and I've never seen her model that you can be curvy, model I mean in terms of demonstrate, um, yeah. that you can be curvy and be okay in your body. And so I put on a stack of weight in fertility treatment and then having a very traumatic pregnancy with Bennett. Bennett was fine, but my experience of pregnancy was horrid. Um, the worst physical experience I've ever had. And then I got super busy, like with running a business. And so right. as much as I've adjusted to being a mom and and I have a successful business now that I love very much, the last thing that's left over is my body. How, how, do, I, how do I come back to my body and reintroduce these healthy habits that fit with where I want to be? And honestly, Hayley, I don't know the answer. I'm still working on using all the strategies that I have, that I know <laughs> from a cognitive perspective and a clinical perspective, yeah. but also that I know work for me sometimes. And I'm yet to land on something that's consistent. As, as someone who's actually shines with consistency from a business perspective um, and from a content creation perspective and all that kind of stuff, I'm, I'm not yet consistent enough with who I want to be for myself. So I would say that emotionally I've nailed it because yeah. I just had a whole stack of branding photos done. Um, and I can look at that photo, those photos and go, you're just so happy. Like I look yeah. and see the joy in my soul. And once upon a time, like in my twenties, when I used to go to the gym, like seven days a week, I would look at that and go, oh my God, look at that role. Whereas now I'm like, you are just the happiness that radiates out of you is priceless. Yeah. Um, so I can do that now, but practically the biggest challenge for me would be letting go of that perfectionism so that I can introduce imperfect habits that yeah. are better than no habits rather than swinging between this. Yes, she's on track. Like she's swimming six times a week and then she walks the dog in the afternoon drinking four litres of water a day. Like yeah, can we calm down? Apparently I can't, but I'll let you know when I can. All, when all I can. or nothing. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. Watch this space. That's right. Balance. And I also, also can't say it any other way. So I'm never going to end up on your podcast having a chat and not be transparent about that because it's really yeah. important for me to know that our listeners don't feel ashamed if they're feeling the same way. Like Absolutely. I don't believe that you can be perfect in every area and these challenges show up at different times. I My health was once nailed. Like I spent so much time caring for it and now in this new season I'm trying to adjust to finding a way that fits for me and I'm not I haven't quite landed on it so it just is what it is right it's I'm I'm a work in progress it's a practice isn't it we we're again in, yeah. in the group this morning we were talking about that and um, one of the participants said you know I'm doing it but I'm not doing it perfectly and I'm like I never will right like never will, I never will. This is this is an ongoing practice of how do we be human and navigate this world and all that's in it. And when I don't do things the way I know would be helpful, how can I be compassionate rather than critical? Yeah. Um, I know I certainly struggle with that health thing. I did a couple of reels the other day around like, ah, how do people stay consistent with exercise? Because <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, but then used to be, you know, full on gym twice a day almost way yeah. too much like same by the other end which was not yeah. helpful at all so yeah. it's complex we're complex little beings we are nines yeah so given all that okay. again i'm gonna get this boiled down to this one question and just say <laughs> hey with all your knowledge and expertise and everything you've lived for <laughs> you <laughs> you know, what would be one piece of advice you would share with all listeners <laughs> like what's the one thing you think oh that's what if I only ever had one thing left to say in the world. <laughs> that was a bit dramatic. I, but anyway. <laughs> no, because I do have that. If I only had one thing that I could share, it would be to consistently check in about whether or not you're giving away your choices about how you live this one life that you've been given to someone who's not you. Yeah. So my that that would be, and that is my practice, to constantly come back to 
am I living the way that I want to live rather than bending myself or turning myself inside out because I want to please somebody else or because I think that's the way I should do it. Yeah. How often are you giving away your choices for living this one life you've been given to other people? Oh, wow. That's a really good one for everyone to think about, hey? Yeah. Yeah. I I always talk to people around and, and what is the motivation for doing that? Yeah. Like, can you really tune in and ask yourself, why would I, why would I do that? Is it fear likely as it probably is? Spoiler alert. Yes. <laughs> yes. But, yeah. Oh, but it can also be habit. Yeah. Sometimes we can spend so much time in our relationships thinking of others first. Yeah. And I'm not saying don't think of others. I'm just no. saying that when you give from your giving tanks, if you haven't actually checked in with the resources available, then yeah. you could end up, being burnt out because you're constantly offering other people energy that you needed for yourself. Yeah. And that's a recipe to end up in a place I call resentmentville. And yeah. um, I just, I don't, I don't, I don't live there anymore. I don't, and I take too much responsibility for my own life that the question is always, always comes back to me. If I'm in a situation that I don't want to be in, um, then what did I do to create that situation? And yeah. how can I learn from that to make sure that I realign next time so that I'm not in that situation? Yeah, absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, habit could be, well, I've always done that. I've yep. always done that. That's what my mum did or my dad did or that's what I watched my aunt or my grandparent or my caregiver or whoever do. Yeah. And because I've always done that, that's what people expect of me. And yeah. this is one thing I cover in setting boundaries quite a lot is sometimes one of the difficulties that comes with setting boundaries for the first time is the reactions that you get from people who were invested in you having no boundaries. Yeah, absolutely. So you're almost retraining them in what to expect from you. And it is easier to maintain habits. Honestly, it is. And the most common comment I get on social media posts when I put up something about responsibility is everything's easier said than done and I'm like it is yeah absolutely <laughs> you know unless we're talking about breathing yes everything is easier said than done yeah but when we're looking at your relationship with your future self your future self is actually counting on you to make decisions today about how you distribute your personal resources yeah. otherwise you're going to end up in resentment bill yeah absolutely now talking about your future self yeah. that leads me very nicely oh okay <laughs> into my next question that I ask everybody that comes on and I really like this one if you could meet your 80 year old self mm-hmm. what do you think she'd say to you she'd say she's proud oh. yeah she would. Yeah. she would she would say um she would say that I'm I'm where she wants me to be. And she would she would also say some things that I don't like. And those <laughs> things are to continue trusting and being patient that all the seeds that I've planted will bear harvest at some point. Yeah. But there's no amount of forcing that I need to do to make it happen. I've done enough. I am enough. I am consistently enough that the opportunities that are in my future will come anyway. I don't need to be different. I don't need to be more. I, I am exactly what I need to be. And so in order to be able to see that harvest come, the only things I need to practice are trust and patience. Uh-huh. And that's when I get the shits because I do not like patience. Yeah. Uh, trust is my lifelong lesson. But she would say that wrapped up in being incredibly proud of the human that I have become. Um, and she would also say, drink some water. Drink some water. Yeah, <laughs> Did you have a glass of water, Hayley? Yes. <laughs> I'm working on it, I yes. promise. <laughs> but, you know, as you, as you were saying that, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned before you, you used to be very harsh with yourself, and I mm. can certainly relate to that. I was extremely self-critical growing up. And I think this is why, for me, it's been so profound bringing self-compassion into my life. I'm changing my relationship with myself. But, you know, I, I imagine if I'd have asked myself, and, I, and I'm, I'm imagining this would have been the same for you, if I'd have asked you that question 10, 20 years ago, that would have been a very different answer, hey? You know, and to, 
Yeah, and to get to this place where you can say, you know what, my eight-year-old self would actually say, I'm proud of you and you, you are enough mm. and all that you do is enough. And I think it makes me really feel teary. Ah. Yes. I, I, the thing that's most profound is I believe I do now. Yeah, yeah. And, no, I'm hearing you. I, I feel it. Yes, I might have been able to say the words 10 years ago, but they would have only been intellectual. Mm. Um, and then even prior to that, oh, little girl, like, uh, you're okay. You don't need to try so hard. You yeah. can have a sleep in. It's okay. Yeah. 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 I, I'm, I'm very much now, I, perhaps this is about parenting as well, maybe, and the fact that I'm a late parent. So I had Bennett when I was 38, I think, or maybe I turned 39 the month after I had him. It was quite late. And, um, I think in being so conscious about who I want to be for him, I've started being who I needed as a parent yeah. as well. Yeah. I'm, I'm just so much better at parenting myself because there's a little being that he's four and a half now. He can't self-regulate, you know, as any four and a half year old can't. He can sometimes, but, you know, when he loses it, when he's just being challenging in some way, my approach to that is always you don't have a left prefrontal cortex that's wired. Like my, I don't expect anything more of you. And yet me yeah. as a child, so much was expected of me. And yeah. if I was at all emotional, that was very inconvenient. I was too much. Um, and so my own experience now is just so much, it's so much nicer to be me. It's not, it's so much nicer in my head. And yeah. maybe that's a function of, what Bennett has given me, the gift of being Bennett's mum, is that my relationship with who I am is I'm a really lovely parent to little me now. Yeah. I can really relate to that with, with my my adult boy now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Parenting's a ride, isn't it? Like it teaches us so much about ourselves. Uh-huh. And continues to. My, my, my adult, you know, my son's an adult. Um, yeah. It uh, continues to, but it's yeah. Oh, this has been so lovely. It's been it really, really lovely Thank you for asking such great questions as well. I love, you know, I do interviews all the time, and so um, sometimes we end up just talking so much about strategies. You know, people get me on interviews and say, "Can you give us some tips for when people struggle with X psychological concept?" But it's really nice to just get real and talk yeah. emotionally about life. Yeah, and this is my hope for the listeners is that, you know, we are humans in the therapist mm. chair and um, yeah. I think hearing from other practitioners or people that have been practitioners and now are working in other areas um, and other, you know, fellow humans yeah. can just be really normalising and really validating and hopefully people, you know, learn something and can make some choices in their lives that are going to be helpful, um, yeah. not only for them as practitioners and hopefully to be able to sustain what it is they have worked so hard to do but also as as human beings in all domains of our lives yeah because it's it's tough out there right being a being a human being with a tricky mind it's like let alone being a human wild. being with a tricky mind helping other human beings with their with tricky minds, minds. <laughs> families with humans with tricky minds and yeah wow like who signed up for all this but anyway <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit about any current projects that you've currently got going? I mean, you're saying you're heading into this kind of pointy end of the book, and I'm really grateful and, and feel very lucky that I got you just in time before you are sort of like head down and not doing any more interviews. So that's You're cool. my last. You're my last. Yay! Um, <laughs> yes, so I'm writing book number six, and um, most of my books have been quite short. So what happened with Pan Macmillan was they actually started testing me out on the market. Yeah. Um, and so that was with small gift books that aren't all that long, didn't take all that long to write. But uh, Setting Boundaries was a long, big book. And yeah. um, the next book is the same size as Setting Boundaries. Yeah. So I'm in the writing phase for that. And it's tough. It's I never, <laughs> I never quite know how a book's going to turn out until I'm actually in the Play-Doh making phase. Um, where I'm shaping it. And so that's where my head's at right now. That book will be out, I imagine, 
at the end of June in 2023. And so in between now and then, I will just continue doing my mentoring in my um, in intentional business. And I am just making sure that the opportunities that come towards me aren't taking me away from where my head needs to be right now. So the manuscript having the manuscript done is my last huge thing for 2022 and 2023 for me will be not writing a book so this year I know you're going to laugh at me really (laughs) I once said I said to you last year that I was never going to write two books in one year and this year I will have written four by the time we get to the end of it because um I know, right? You're looking at me as if to say, I don't believe all the things you've just said in this interview about you doing less. Um, <laughs> so one book was originally an audible podcast, Small yeah. Habits for a Big Life, started as an audible podcast. If you'd like to listen to that, it's called Breakthrough, Overcome Self-Sabotage, Achieve More and Be Your Best Self. And it's free for audible subscribers. And yeah. then Pan McMillan turned that into a book. So it's not like I had to write something completely new for them. Yeah. We just edited it so that it was in book form. And then I've, I have another Audible release coming out in January, I think. So I prepared that this year. And I can't talk about the other thing that I'm writing um, because I'm on an NDA, but that's got to be written this year as well. It's a bit smaller than the book. The biggest thing that I'm doing is my next book for Pam McMillan. So next year, next year I'm not writing a book, Hayley. I'm not doing it. Um, I promise you because my brain actually does need um, a break and also readers need a break. So one of the things about creating content is that you end up with a fan base and people love your work, but I can't exhaust them by constantly throwing something new for them to read or listen to. So we're all having a break next year, okay? We're just having a break. Nice. You heard it first here. Yes, and, I, and I, there are quite a few followers on this podcast, so you have me and many witnesses to this. Please you are not writing a book next year. <laughs> <laughs> and I think, you know, we we all need breaks, don't we? We need breaks from our work. We need little mini breaks throughout the day. Yeah. Um, yeah, we need, to, yeah. we need to slow down at times and rest. Yes. Refocus. The change that has changed with my process, though, is I'm faster now. So being faster with my writing means that there's less energy that's required because I'm doing it for a shorter amount of time, which means that I can also do other things. But also I noticed that there's a rhythm to being in a, in a job like I now do in a business. So I take advantage of opportunities as they come. And that means a lot of sometimes opportunities come all at once yeah. And you you need to say yes, but that also means saying no to others. So I'm yeah. just really clear now about things that I want to jump on because they're happening right now and yeah. things that I'll go, no, we'll get to that at some other time. Yeah. Other opportunities come, don't they? It's okay to say no to things because I think people can get that thing, can't they, of, oh, but if I say no, nobody will ask me ever again. And it's like, it's yes. just not true. Oh, FOMO. Oh, true. no, someone else will get it. And in big um, industry like I'm in now, it does happen, but... I don't, I just refuse to buy into it. Yeah. Good for you. Good yeah. for you. So if people want to find out more about you or get in touch, where can they find you and engage with your work? And I'll put links on the show notes as well. Sure. So my online home is rebeccaray.com.au and I'm on the socials as at Dr. Rebecca Ray or one word, mainly over at Instagram because that's where most of my people hang out. Um, I have been hassled to start a TikTok. But I've done nothing more than reserve the username. So, yeah, look, I'm on the fence um, about it. You can find me on Audible. So if you just search for Dr. Rebecca Ray, then a few of my books and original podcasts are on Audible and most of my books are in Kindle and audio format as well. Um, And you can find all my books in lots of places. So my publisher would like me to say they're in all good bookstores um, and (laughs) online retailers and if your local independent bookstore doesn't stock me then ask them to like tell them that's not okay Um, (laughs) but you can generally find them in most places so go check them out fantastic you've put so much wonderful work out into the world and I'm really really thrilled that you joined me today before your very busy writing period thank you so much for coming on and I'm sure people will um, really enjoy this episode and get a lot from it
My pleasure. Thank you for being my last. Thank you, Beck. Thank you for sharing this time with me today. I hope your time here was helpful and supportive. If there has been something in this episode that you have found helpful, I invite you to share it with another person you think might benefit. I'd also love it if you'd like to leave a review wherever you tune in. Reviews really help to increase awareness of podcasts, meaning I can spread helpful information more widely. All reviews are welcome and much appreciated, as I know they take time out of your day. Music and editing by Nissa Ray. Thanks, Nissa. I wish you all well in your relationship with yourself, and may you go well and go gently. Thank you.